0: Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. Um, yeah, as he said, I work up on the university campus alongside my, my co-worker, Matt, and uh, together we, the two of us, direct that ministry up there. Um, I'm also married. Uh, there's a photo here. Here's my two little kids, uh, Asher and Saul. Yeah. Um, Asher's six and Solomon's four. And my wife, she works in Vernon as a, as a family justice counselor, and so she gives to that community through that role. And when we get away from the kids, uh, this is what we look like when we have overnight care. Um, That is a symbol right there of freedom. And uh, we were so lucky to do that uh, recently, weddings, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, This morning, or this morning, this evening, um, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. You guys are starting a series, I I assume, through the book of Philippians over the next couple weeks. And uh, Chad um, told me I was really quite, I felt really quite lucky that he asked me to, to preach on chapter 2, because chapter 2 of Philippians happens to be my, one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture. Um, Philippians 2 has become for me really a lens through which um, I see my Christian faith. Um, I I really believe that Philippians 2 is that important of a passage for us to get right. And and really, I hope I can kind of impart my passion for this passage to you tonight. Um, I really hope that each one of us can leave tonight with Philippians 2 sort of in our tool belt. You know what we have we have so many passages. We, have, we usually have a handful of passages in our tool belt. Maybe, maybe, you've, maybe it's John 3.16 is memorized. Maybe it's Psalm 23 is memorized. Maybe it's the Great Commission or, or when Jesus talks about the Great Commandments. I think that this passage that we're going to look at tonight is that important. Um, I remember actually the day that this passage opened itself up to me. It was when I was uh, taking a preaching course at Regent College where I studied and, and did my seminary training. And it was partly opened up to me because of uh, the surprising revelation that, that our preaching professor kind of helped us see in this text, and, and so I give him credit for, for the content of this. But, um, but, but the other way that this passage opened up to me was because of the season I was in. I had recently gotten engaged And uh, my wife and I, you know, when you get engaged, you kind of do the premarital counseling stuff. And and the couple that was coaching us and and mentoring us uh, really helped us see this passage and how critical and how foundational it could be to our marriage uh, uh, relationship. And so we actually chose this passage to be the passage that was read at our wedding. And we wanted it to be the foundation of our marriage. Okay, are you enticed enough? Like, do you want to get into this text now? Okay, I sold it to you. All right. Well, if, if you're enticed, then we'll roll the video. And this we have this video that will give you a chance to read and, and encounter this passage. So does, does music move you? How many here does music just really move you? How many here like when you hear a song, it can like totally change your attitude? Like you're Mr. Grumpy Pants in the morning and then all of a sudden you put on your favorite tune and you're like, yeah? Or does only coffee do that for you? <laughs> um, for me, I'm the kind of person that like music moves me. You, if, if the right song is on, I am a happy man. And thankfully, I married a, a, a lady who, who it does the same to her. So we're the kind of couple that, like I was saying, you know, first of all, we're just excited to be at a wedding without our kids is, is the thing we're usually joyful about. But we love to cut a rug, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so we were at this wedding last week, and, you know, there was that awkward moment where, you know, the bride and the groom had had their first dance, and then, they, and then the bride had danced with her, with her uh, dad, and, and then, you know, there's that first song, and... And the first song, is like, is everyone going to get on the dance floor or not? And you can kind of see, see people hesitate. And then there's those, like, three or four oddballs who are like, let's do it. And they get out there. <laughs> but then we waited. You know, my wife and I were waiting. We're waiting. And all of a sudden, we hear, you know, Justin Timberlake, I, I can't stop that feeling. And ooh, we can't stop that feeling. We just run. We grab our whole table. And we get the party started. That, for us, we, this is, that's, music for us just changes our attitude in a moment. And I love how music can do that. Um, The passage what we're looking at today, Philippians chapter um, um, 5 through 11, is is a hymn. It's an early Christian hymn. Um, Because of its rhythmic and poetic style, most New Testament scholars agree that what we have here is an early Christian hymn. So if you've ever wondered, you know, like we have, you know, Christian worship music keeps changing. And if you've ever wondered, like, what, what, what was the worship music like in Paul's church plants? Here we have it. We have an early Christian hymn. Now, we don't know if Paul like, composed this hymn when he was writing the letter, or if Paul wrote this hymn earlier and then is now including it in the letter, or, or maybe this was just a hymn that was known in the, in the church of Philippi. Maybe there was a worship leader in Philippi. We don't really know. But what we do know is that this hymn turns everything upside down. I think that this passage summarizes the Christian faith, what's at the very center of a Christian faith. So if we look at verse 5, we find, I think, that one of the most profound exhortations in the entire letter. This is why I feel lucky, because like from here on, chapter 3, chapter 4, beyond, right here is the most profound exhortation. And here it is. It's worth memorizing. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus. Like imagine if every single member here woke up every morning thinking that, right? Like imagine if if every relationship you had and every encounter you had, you wanted to treat that person with the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus. Like your coworkers, your siblings, that annoying person in the line in front of you. Right? Imagine if we had that attitude with everyone we encountered. Jesus said the greatest commandments are to love God and love our neighbor. But I believe that when we start to understand the attitude of mind of Christ Jesus, we will want to love God all the more with our entire being, our entire beings. And, and we'll actually now know how to love our neighbors as ourselves. But how? How do we do this? How do we understand what is really in the mind of Jesus? Well, the answer is found through a surprising discovery in this hymn. So this hymn is known as the Christ hymn. Some people call it the servant song because because it sings of the most profound decision that Jesus ever made. Now, this hymn is comprehensive in scope, Um, I don't mean that it it covers everything, but it's comprehensive in that it tells us the entire story of Jesus' life in the widest scope. If you look in the first stanza, it kind of sings of Jesus' pre-earthly existence from verses 6 to 7. And the second stanza sings of his earthly existence from 7 to 8. And then the third stanza sings of his post-earthly existence from verses 9 to 11. So it goes, it moves from a time before Bethlehem to Calvary to our present and our our awaited future. Um, Maybe this is more familiar. It's sort of like a three-act structure in a Hollywood film. You know how most Hollywood films, got that typical three-act structure. The first act is like going on an adventure and all is good. And the second act, something terrible happens and it looks like they're never going to get out of it. And then the third act, some resolution comes, Right? Um, that's what this passage uh, moves through. The hymn begins with Jesus at the height of glory, equal to God. And then it moves through the, the depths of Jesus' self-emptying, taking on, you know, human likeness. And then because he descended all the way, Jesus is exalted to the highest place in the universe. Now, I mention this three-act movement because the primary message of this hymn is, um, that this hymn is singing, emerges from a decision Jesus makes in his pre-earthly state. The hymn in verse 6 sings, He did not consider. All the events of Jesus' life flow out of this decision. He did not consider. In fact, the whole of salvation flows out of this decision. He did not consider. How we're to treat others flows out of his decision that he did not consider. But in order to appreciate the magnitude of this decision, I want to first look at at these three acts of Jesus' life. And I want to title these acts, The Cradle, The Towel, and The Cross. So first, The Cradle. Verse 7 sings of Jesus being made in human likeness. Um, In theological terms, we call this the Incarnation. So, you know, we've, we follow the church calendar, right? And always at, at Christmas time is a great time where we reflect on the incarnation. You know, for four weeks in December, we reflect on how God has come to be with us. And I don't know about you, but I've been in a lot of churches where at Christmas time, you know, all the kids come out and they, they put on a little play. That's always the manger scene and, and who gets to be Joseph and Mary. And they place this, you know, doll in the, in the manger, right? Um, and we're reminded of that every Christmas. And to me, it's, it's, it's one of those shocking things. Like that Jesus would come incarnate, that he'd be born as a baby, that he'd be humbled himself to be born in a barn. Verse 6 only makes this even more inconceivable because it says... Jesus who being in very nature God he was God he had the same nature as God He had the same resources as God it even says that he is equal with God so his divinity is on the same level as God the father and yet the scandal of the incarnation is that he chooses to be born in human likeness God enters our world in a cradle now why does he do that why does he do it Well, if how Jesus enters the world isn't shocking enough, look, look at the vocation that he takes up. Jesus chooses to take up the towel. He chooses to be a servant. Verse 7 says, He made himself nothing. In other translations, it says, He emptied himself. Now, sometimes we've gotten confused about that language. Um, some, some, sometimes we've thought, Oh, is that, does that mean that he somehow stopped being divine? That he's less than God in some way? What did he give up if he emptied himself? But that's not what the text says. Hey, notice notice what the text says. It says, he made himself nothing by taking. He made himself nothing by taking. So his emptying of himself wasn't a subtraction. It was an addition. He emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant. Why? Why? Why does he do this? Now, many translations um, read the word uh, with the word servant, but some other more contemporary translations even now render it slave. Now, now why the difference? What's the difference between slave and and servant? Well, there's two Greek words uh, in the New Testament that are translated servant. Uh, The first one is called diakonos. And diakonos is where we get the word for deacon, and a diakonos at that time um, was a servant who hired himself or herself out um, in order to pay off an immense debt over a long period of time. That they would obligate themselves to a master until they were out of debt. Um, this is often how university students feel when they first graduate. Um, <laughs> the other word is the word doulos, and, the, and doulos' servant has no rights the do-loss servant is much like what we would think of today as a slave. They are at the beck and call of the master. They, no matter what time or what chore, they have no independent rights. And interesting enough, it's this second term that the hymn uses. Now think about that. The Son of God becomes a slave. The Divine One becomes a do-loss why why does he do it he enters our world in a cradle he takes up a towel and then verse 8 says that jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient obedient to death even death on a cross so jesus takes up the cross and we know that it's on the cross that, that Jesus presents himself as a sacrifice, right? It's on the cross that Jesus makes atonement for our sins. It's on the cross that Jesus wiped the slate clean, past, present, and future. It's on the cross that Jesus defeats death. It's on the cross that he makes a way for all of us to be reconciled to God. So through his, his death um, is our ransom. His death is, ends up being our rescue. His death is our redemption and our salvation. Now, we wear crosses around our necks, right? Or maybe more so, we tattoo ourselves now, maybe, um, as a symbol of our faith. And it's now become a very familiar object or, or symbol in our culture. But, but think about that in the first century. The cross, what, what the symbol was of a cross. It was designed for excruciating torture, it was, it was the most degrading way to die. And Jesus chooses the cross. Like, think of how people responded to that at that time. Like, how could that be anything but a sign of failure, of his failed messiahship? It, it, it becomes the most scandalous story in history. How could he do it? Why does he do it? I don't, I don't think it's not only the most scandalous story in history, but I think it's actually the turning point in history. Did you notice in the video when the music became kind of climactic, kind of triumphant? Do you know what verse that was? Remember what verse that kind of turning point came? Is that verse nine, right? Our, sim, our, our hymn sings of this turning point. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But how? How can that that be? How does Jesus go from being on a cross to being exalted? How do we go from verse 8 to verse 9? Well, here's the answer. The answer is that it proved that Jesus knew what it meant to be God. Why did Jesus enter our world in a cradle? Why did he take up the towel? Why did he endure the cross? The answer is because he knows what it means to be God. Remember earlier when I said that this message of this, of this hymn emerges from a decision that he makes in his pre-earthly state? Like, imagine it like this. Imagine that, that Jesus is kind of sitting around thinking about what it means to be God, and he's in his pre 3 state, and he's, he's contemplating, and he's thinking about it. And he's thinking, what does it mean to be equal with God? The Son of God is contemplating what it means to be equal with God, and he comes to the conclusion that I don't think any of us would come to. I don't think anybody except for God the Father or the Holy Spirit would come to this conclusion. Jesus is thinking, he's considering, what does it mean to be equal with God? And he comes to this conclusion That being equal with God is self-emptying. That to be God equals self-emptying love. That's what verse 6 says, right? Who being in very, very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But he made himself a servant. He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And that's why he comes in a cradle. That's why he comes as a servant. That's why he comes and endures the cross. So this passage doesn't actually just teach us about what's at the heart of Jesus. This passage teaches us what's at the heart of our Father God. Like we know, we look at Jesus' life and we know, right, he humbled himself. We see that in his life. He touched lepers. He healed the sick and, and the broken. He, he hung out with the outcast and the sinners. I mean, Jesus endured endured. Uh, torture and he was whipped and he was spat at we can see the outwardness of jesus taking this on but he did this he did this all because that's what it means to be god so now when you you see those scenes at christmas time you know don't be scandalized you can see that scene and that brings you joy because you know that that's what that's what it means to be god Maybe you've read that passage where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And and that's a crazy passage. Here's Jesus, the king of the universe, bending down and washing his disciples' feet. Well, we don't have to be scandalized by that passage because he's showing them what his father is like. You know that passage where um, the centurion is sitting at the foot of of the cross. Jesus is dying on the cross. And it's such a curious passage, right? The centurion is watching Jesus, and the passage says he looks up to him, kind of terrified, and exclaims, surely he was the Son of God. Which I've always looked at and I'm like, how did he come to that conclusion? Like he's looking at this man dying and, and how does he come to that conclusion? It's because the centurion gets it. He sees Jesus pouring out self-emptying love for all humanity. And that's what this hymn sings. Now, if being God does not mean something to be taken advantage of, but emptying oneself, how can being human mean anything less? I I think that each and every one of us is created in the image of God. Every person on this planet was created to reflect the character and nature of God, which means we're most fully human when we reflect the character and nature of God. So in Jesus, we discover that being God is best understood in terms of servanthood. Therefore, when, then we are most who we are meant to be when we express that, when we empty our lives for other people like servants. And we kind of know that, right? We kind of know that intrinsically. Like everyone knows, like when we serve someone else, you get this warm feeling, right? You get the sense that we're, you know, the, we're doing good. It's that self-emptying love. Um, I've seen my students on the university campus catch on to this truth through a program um, we started called Red Frogs. And so about three years ago, we started this program on campus. And uh, Red Frogs really started in Sydney, Australia, when a local youth pastor you know, he was just trying to practice some incarnational presence with among his skateboarding kids when they graduated from high school. Now, in Australia, I don't know, how many have been to Australia? Australia, everything, they party hard there, don't they? Um, in Canada, we have grad night. Australia, they have grad week. So, you know, they, all the grads, they head down to the beaches, the Gold Coast, and they just rent out all these towers all along the beaches, and they just party all week long. And so it didn't take long for Andy to see that he see the need and wanted to serve in it. And so he gathered a bunch of people from his church and he said, Let's go be a sober presence in the midst of all this partying. And he grabbed some bags of red frogs and these little Australian candies and he started handing them out and making connections and, and just trying to keep people, you know, safe, walking people home and, and just doing whatever it took to keep people more safe. Well, when we heard about this, it didn't take us long to figure out the, you know, the application to the university campus. And so we connected with the student union. And we said we would provide this. And they had started doing these big concerts on campus. Maybe you guys have been to them. And, um, and we just said, well, we'll set up a hydration station. We'll give away water and freezies and donuts and whatever we can get our hands on and just get food into people's bellies. And just my students just want to love and serve on, on, on their peers. So they allowed us to do that, and they, and they just realized what a gap and what a need that was. It's actually at the point now where security on the campus requires them to have a harm reduction program with, um, because, they started, because we started doing this. So red frogs required now. And the common question I get from like, leaders in the student union or in administration or in other clubs is they're always wondering, they're like, how do you get so many volunteers out? Because what we do, like when we go to serve, I get as many of our students who want to do it. We, you know, we really need like four or six people behind the table to hand out water and donuts or whatever. But we always show up with like 15 or 20 students. And we just try to be a party and a light in the midst of the party. We try to just, I send students out to just walk around the party and keep people safe. We just want to be extra hands and feet. And so people are always asking, us, like, man, how do you get so many volunteers? Like, and, uh, and, I, and then I get to tell them. I get to tell them that for most of our students, you know, they, they, they're part of our Christian club. And for them, they follow a leader who believes that the most important way to lead is by serving. Uh, we follow a leader who actually what he did was he took a towel and he wiped his followers' feet. And he said, that's how you're to be in this world. And that's like one of my favorite stories is tell people you know, it's kind of my go-to story. Remember I was telling you about stories in your tool belt? You should have some. We have this three-part motto um, that we say every night before we go out. And we say, we're going to bring the awesome tonight, we're going to serve our butts off, and we're going to pay attention to the ones. And, uh, and they really live that out. I'm always blown away at how much they, they kind of go above and beyond the call. The pay attention to the ones thing is that I just always tell our students, hey, God's going to have somebody for you tonight. Like we serve with no agenda, there's no agenda, we just are loving and serving on people. But I believe that if you do that, God's going to bring people into your life. And uh, every night students have stories, um, they have their ones. I'm thinking of um, the way that our students just serve over and over and over again. They're just, they're tuning into this self-emptying love. Like at the last recess, uh, uh, a guy named Alex and a guy named Tim, they just, they, they wanted to kind of break our record with how many cups they had given out. And so they were just, you know, madly getting cups out there as much as they can. And, and they did. They broke the record. Last, last time we served over 6,000 cups of water at recess to about 3,000 students. Um, I think of a girl named Alessa who I, I watched her for an hour and a half sit with a girl as she puked her guts out into one of our garbage cans. And she was like holding her hair and keeping it out of her face. And she, she just waited patiently with her until she was ready to go home. <laughs> you know, she's like, do you, want, you know, are you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready to go back to dorm. And then we got a couple people and helped her walk back to dorm. I think of, um, I think of Sarah, who her and I, one night, we were, we were walking around. We do this. We'll do walk around the campus and just try to make sure that people are safe. And we saw this girl kind of heading back to her dorm. I don't know if you know the field up there, but she was crossing the field. All of a sudden, boof. We just saw her crash in the middle of the field. So we run. And we're like, are you okay? And She's like, yeah, I think I'm just going to sleep here tonight. (laughs) We were like, no, sweetie, let's, you know, you're almost at your dorm. Let's help you get, we'll, we'll get you there. And, you know, as a dad later, I just thought, oh, like, I have boys. But, man, if I had a girl, I mean, I think we're reducing potential harm, you know? So I regularly stand in awe of my Red Froggers who are really, really tuning into this. This is what our program is about. It helps our students really tune into this posture of of self-emptying love. They've caught this vision to to love on and serve their neighbors. So as we close up, I'm just gonna call the band back up, and they're gonna close in some worship here. But um, when I think of um, this passage and how it kind of tunes us missionally, I look at the, at the cradle, the incarnation, and I look at how Jesus, um, I look how Jesus was sent into our world. God came to us to reach us, and that's the calling of every Christian is that we're called to be sent. We're not trying to gather people here, but we actually need to go out and be sent to people. And so I think the question, you know, just a question to kind of challenge you on is, is to whom is God sending you? And I don't mean just as an individual, but I mean collectively, right? I know you guys like hashtag better together, right? How can can you be a community together and be on mission together? When I look at the towel, I think the towel causes us to ask the question, well, well, how can we serve these people to whom you've sent us? And finally, the cross, right? The cross always makes us ask the question, what do I need to die of, Father, in order to go and do that? What's holding me back? What's too comfortable in my life? What's the things that I'll say no to? What do I need to die of? Well, Philippians 2 at the, from verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, does anybody here have encouragement from being united with Christ? Yeah? It says, if you have any comfort from his love. Does anybody here have any comfort from his love? It says, if any common sharing in his spirit. Are we sharing in his spirit? If any tenderness, any compassion. If you're experiencing any of these in your relationship with Christ, it says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. And it challenges us. It says, do not do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And finally, that key exhortation, so in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Like I said earlier, music moves us, right? It has the power to change our attitudes. It might even get you to get out of your chair and get dancing. Well, my prayer for this community is that the hymn of Philippians 2 moves you. Put this song in your playlist, Okay? May it change your attitude to the attitude of Christ Jesus. May it cause you to be incarnational, going wherever Jesus calls you. May it cause you to take up the towel and serve your neighbors with self-emptying love. And may it cause you to die to yourself that you might live for Christ. Amen.